When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. And by Onyx Maps. Know where you stand. You are tuned in to the Project Upland podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the best and most complete rough grouse hunting experience in northern Minnesota. I take that back. Probably anywhere. Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, where adventure awaits you. And by Onyx Maps. Absolutely must-have necessary mapping tool and application for lovers of the outdoors. You got to have it. You got to check them out. OnyxMaps.com. Know where you stand. And by Gumleaf USA. That is Gumleaf USA. And by request from one of my faithful and cherished listeners, Gumleaf is G-U-M-L-E-A-F, Gumleaf, all one word, like chewing gum and maple leaf, that is Gumleaf. Find them at gumleafusa.com, top quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots that take you anywhere and keep your feet dry while they're doing it. Check them out, gumleafusa.com, use promo code PU2018, free shipping from gumleafusa.com. All right, no guarantees, but I'm going to try to make this one of the quickest intros we've ever done. I have a million things to do tonight. Tomorrow, I leave 
loading up the truck, loading up the dog, rendezvousing with a buddy in Fargo. We're headed west, somewhere in western North Dakota, chasing sharp tails and huns. I can't wait. It's my first trip of the year. I'm leaving tomorrow. I got a lot of stuff to do. You will hear from us along the way. After North Dakota, we're going to spend a couple days there out at Tyler Webster's camp. You might hear us on the Birds, Booze, and Buds podcast. You never know. Could get into some shenanigans out there. After that, we're headed further west to Montana to meet up with some of the other guys from Project Upland. We've got a hunt planned out there. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. Stay tuned for more from Project Upland. You will hear from us during our trip. All right, seriously, I'm going to wrap this intro up. I've got to get going. i got to get packing. This episode is for my rough grouse and woodcock hunting brethren and sisters headed out this weekend for the opener in the Upper Great Lakes states, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan. This is for you. She's a repeat guest. She's amazing. She is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to grouse, woodcock, habitat, and she loves to share that knowledge. And it's very evident in our conversation today. I interviewed her about a year ago. Check out episode number seven if you haven't listened to it already. I'm sure you will learn something by listening to that. You will definitely learn something from listening to today's episode. And maybe if you listen to both of them, you might realize how much better this podcast has got in the last year. At least I hope that's what you think. I really hope you enjoy this episode. And to everybody going out hunting this weekend, have a great, safe hunt. I wish you the best, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Let's welcome to the Project Tuppen Podcast, without further ado, owner of Northwind Enterprises and Jandernaw. Jandernaw, welcome back to the Project Upland Podcast. Thanks for joining us tonight. No problem. Good to talk with you again. Likewise, Anne. Very happy to have you back on the podcast. I, I think you've got to be probably our first repeat guest. Now we did. I did have Greg Elliott on here twice, part one, part two. But that doesn't count. We uh, we talked to you about a year ago, and we have you back on the podcast tonight. As when people are listening to this, we will be bearing down on the. Great Lakes State's rough grouse season opener. I think, do you know off the top of your head, I think it's Saturday, September 15th, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan all open on the same day this year, which isn't always the case because Michigan always opens on the 15th. Is that right? I believe so, but don't quote me on that one. It's been a while since since I've lived in, in Michigan, you know, even though I'm, I'm originally from Michigan. So the important takeaway there is anybody listening to this, please check your regulations. Don't take Ann and my word for it. <laughs> well, it's on them, not us. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, don't don't play back this episode to the game warden if you stand on next to your truck right now. <laughs> well, and we uh, we've got plenty to talk about. This will be fun. I know I am super excited for hunting season. It's right around the corner. I am mere days away from heading west for my first trip of the year. I'm sure you'll be out in the woods soon. I know you've been out in the woods. We're going to talk about that. But this is a this is a busy time of year. Actually, I got to rewind. I want to. I don't know if we did this in the first time, but but let's have you put us on the map. Where is Northwind Enterprises headquarters? Where do you call home base? And where does all the magic happen? 
Well, magic happens, if you want to call it that, or me banging my head against a computer, (laughs) (laughs) is actually in Glidden, Wisconsin. Um, We're about 45 minutes from Lake Superior. I'm a native of Michigan, went to school up at uh, Michigan Tech uh, University for forestry. And um, my parents are up in the Keweenaw, grew up in southwestern Michigan, but ended up somehow over in Wisconsin. And we're sort of in two places here. Uh, Glidden, is, unfortunately, is not one of these towns that is there's really nothing here for people. Um, so we bought an older home in town because there's good Internet service because of the school. And you got to have that for running a business. But then we have the kennel, and everything is actually out in the county forest. And that's about seven to eight miles out, and it's off-grid, the whole thing. So we have someone that goes back and forth, and we go back and forth constantly with the kennel. I mean, someone was always there. Uh, but I trained in the woods. I mean, originally when we first got that property many, many years ago, my goal was to train for the Iditarod. Um, I was, this was quite a while ago and I knew I could, I could put in a hundred mile runs between there and Hurley and, and over by some other areas and I could really put some runs in to train for something like that. So I back into just thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of woods, you know, and, uh, good grouse cover, but we've had our share of, uh, too much rain, you know, since about 2012. Uh, so that's put a little damper on it. It's caused me to cast out a little bit farther, but, you know, for search of, you know, a little bit different cover. But I would say Glidden, and we're sort of between two places. And, uh, you know, we are basically, if you go off of Main Road, we're about almost 1.2 miles back into the woods. Um, so sometimes when people hear my dogs, they, they think there's a wolf pack back there. <laughs> Some innocent passerby thinks that uh, they're being chased down by a pack of wolves. Yeah, especially when I used to have a lot of sled dogs. You know, sure. they'd, you know, they'd kick into if you've ever been around a sled dog kennel. You know, and I had a large kennel. Uh, they'd kick into a howl, and I'll tell you what, the wolves did never never did come in. They still don't come in because I think they look at this as a stationary pack that just doesn't seem to move. Um, That's a good thing but, you got set up there. Yeah, you know, the crazy part is the deer the deer come in, and they lay down within 20, 30 feet of the fence um, <laughs> you know, on the inside. I mean, you go out there and you'll get snorted at, you know, because there's some does in there, and they're laying down. And, but, you know, they know that they're safe there, too. Well, yeah, you are, you are definitely strategically positioned for the nature of Northwind Enterprises and everything that encompasses that with the dogs, the mapping, and, and really everything that you do. So that is, that's a good place to be. You are, you are firmly planted in grouse country. Wouldn't you agree? Yep. Yep, I would. I would agree. Um, if you're not in the woods, I don't know. I mean, I'm not one of these people that, you know, to be blunt, honest, I can't survive with concrete mentally. It's, I got a feet of wood. I guess that's why I'm a forester. And that's, I could almost, I could be happy being a hermit too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Ann. I hear you, and I appreciate it. Well, 
So as I was before we tailed off on that, because I wanted to cover that, I was getting into the fact that it's definitely a busy time of year. And, and given the business that you operate, it is certainly a busy time of year. You've got to be, I'd venture to guess that, that you're getting, you're starting to hear a lot of chatter. You're getting a lot of inquiries on products. And I know people, I know people call just to sort of pick your brain about things, which is why we have you on the podcast, because I know you you like to share your knowledge and, and the things that you know. So you've got to be getting a lot of inquiries lately. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's been going on since about the middle of July. Um, sure. I keep getting questions, you know, whether it's emails, phone calls, text, repeat phone calls, you know. But that's okay. I mean, yeah. people, people are putting their time into a trip. They're trying, you know, you, a lot of people, you know, and I can remember how it is when you only have a week and you've waited all year. And, you know, Northwind Enterprises and these maps that I do actually started because I got ticked off because I couldn't, I went up to where I thought I could hunt. I was living down lower Michigan and went up to where I used to hunt and it had gotten old. And it messed up the whole vacation. And that aggravated me. So <laughs> there you have it. That's how, <laughs> how a lot of it got started. Well, you know, a lot of great, great businesses are started via a problem. That's uh, that what? is that is a common theme, man. So that's pretty neat. What did you do when you went up there and found all that old forest? You must have done something. What was your plan B? Well, I started scouting. I was over by Launce, Michigan, and uh, you know, over by the. Uh, Lance and Baraga, and which is actually about this north of the Ottawa and Kent, Kenton and you know, uh, you know that area in there. And I just started scouting. I eventually found habitat and stuff that you know. But when you've been away and then you come back, you know, it's like you say you never can go home. You know, what, <laughs> that's sort of what happened. <laughs> yeah. You know? So yeah, you just start scouting and everything, and and then. You know, I ran a lot of logging crews up there, um, and, you know, we had truckers, and I had jobbers, you know, in all different areas and that, and I can remember, in fact, there was a gentleman I was talking to in New Jersey before I, you know, got on the, you know, doing this podcast with you, and he was asking how it started, and we talked about it, and I said, you know, I used to get stopped by these guys all dressed up, clean as everything, it looks like someone pressed their shirts, and you gotta remember, I'm I'm running logging crews, and I'm I've got these logging boots on, steel toe, big grips on them, you know, and everything, and blue jeans, flannel shirt, baseball cap, tearing around the county, you know, the company truck, and these guys would stop me and wake me down. It was like, can you tell us where there's a clear cut? And I thought they were out of their mind. I'm like. I said, don't you want to walk a trail? <laughs> and I'm like, why do you want to be in a clear cut? Well, and then they explained it, the grouse and everything, and I'm looking at them, and they're extremely polite. They have the southern accent, you know, and I've got a lot of friends. I went to school down in South Carolina, and that very, very polite gentleman. So I started scribbling, you know, on this paper, okay, go to this road, go to here, and when some guy goes, some guy holds up a beer can and says, "About this size is what we're looking for." I said, "The beer or the, the tree trunk?" <laughs> 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 I said, "Maybe just a little smaller than this." I said, 
okay. And then and then he says, well, where's the where, where's the creek from here? So I told him, well, here's some of this spruce here, and here's the upland up here, and I draw it. I didn't take anything on it, and they jump in their truck, and I go barreling down the road to the next crew, you know, logging crew. I had to go talk to and see where we were at with our, you know, projects and that. And, and then, you know, when you're single, you know, you don't think too much about it. But I look back now, I mean, those guys would find me back in the morning, like the next day, at a coffee shop, talking to the truckers and the loggers. And next thing you know, they bought, bought me breakfast. And I thought, well, this isn't bad. I draw a map, I get breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and they would be real happy and, and then well do you have any other place you can draw <laughs> so that's how the idea at least got formed and then the things actually came about because i actually was going to walk away from forestry when i got to wisconsin here because i got tired of up in the north here it's just more pulp wood than it is a nice veneer log quality saw logs so i was scheduled to leave forestry and start welding race cars on monday jumped off the side of a pickup truck we were getting ready for a sled dog race jumped off the side of a pickup truck and literally severed the tendon that runs underneath your kneecap so needless to say i didn't leave forestry because i couldn't go stand and weld on monday and you lay there on your back in bed and you know you're not going to be in the woods for quite a while you know, because you have to have surgery. And that's how, that's how the maps got started was because of the accident. Yeah. (laughs) So that's the long and short about being busy and people calling. And, and I just, the whole thing is those people that are passionate and most people are very passionate about grouse. They've got the investment of the dog and the time and the trip. That trip is very important to them. And I know what it's like to be a long ways away and to drive someplace and wonder, what do I do, or where do I shift, or how do I get into habitat? And there's got to be someone out there. You know, unfortunately, a lot of grouse hunters are pretty secretive, and I get that. Yeah. Because you know, I've guided, you know, I've guided for over 15 years, but still, the learning curve is pretty steep. So having people call and ask me questions and stuff, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, we all, you know. If you don't grow the sport, you're not going to have the sport. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I think that hits on two really good things. You know, A, you solved a problem, and B, you provide service and add value, and you continue to do that to this day, obviously. But those are those are really two good ways to start a business, grow a business, and and keep a business running, which is what you do. And I've been been a happy user of your products for the past few seasons, and I'm, and that's why I'm always excited to have you on. Now. I am a little bit curious. It kind of brings up an interesting question since we dove into a little bit of the Northwind history. Certainly a common theme in, at least for in today's day and age, you know, technology plays a role in hunting, whether we like it or not, really. And I'm a little bit curious as to, obviously, when Northwind started, it started with paper maps and we didn't have the types of products and services that we have today, which we'll get into a little bit later. But what was the technology like for you behind the scenes way back when you kicked things off? Because obviously the data and the maps had to come from somewhere. So what kind, what was the technology like for you? Filing cabinets. You go through and you go through all the hand-drawn maps. So they were hand-drawn maps. Yeah. 
They were hand-drawn maps. I'd take a picture of the hand-drawn maps. I'd then, um, you know, look at the, look at, I'd find the cut on Google Earth or on, uh, you know, I used to use MapTech a long time ago or, or Train Navigator Pro I used a long, long time ago. And, uh, I would find it, and that's how I did it. I'd have to go look at imagery and find every single cut. And, uh, you know, it was hard, you know, because that's how you hone your eye for, for cuts yep. and for habitat is by literally looking at a piece of paper that's black and white and saying, okay, there's the rough shape of it. Okay, where's the cut? And the cut, you know, it would have the year and the acres, but that still, there was no Latin long. You had to find it in order to build an eight and a half by 11 map. And that's, and then that eight and a half eventually went to a, you know, just under a 13 by 19 size map. Now that's spiral bound. Yeah. Um, when I went to school and I was, yeah, I'm 54, you know, I basically missed all the GIS. It was just getting started. And I just learned how to draw all the, you know, the cuts and the habitats and looking at imagery and that. But, you know, you, you you know enough, but when you start producing something, you know, having to look at imagery to find the cuts and to actually draw the trails in as best as you can, that's what I would have to do. And you would do it that way, and then eventually it went to, you know, I figured out how to do some chips for the GPS, and then that... You know, and like I said, we'll get into all of it, but the sad part is I really wanted to get more GIS under my belt because I did not have any schooling in that at all. Yeah. And it push came to shove, basically. Skip went through a really rough time with uh, having to go through cancer and treatments and everything. And while he was going through that, um, I knew I couldn't keep doing it the way we were. Because it was a really rough go for him. And why he'd be crashed in the other room after having treatments. And I had a forester come in. And I got probably 15 to 20 hours of training. And I told him, I said, I bought the software. Teach me. This is what I want to do. Teach me what I need to know to accomplish this. I don't have time for all this other stuff. I have to focus exactly on what I need to do. I make this transition, and since then, I've learned a lot more. But most of it's, I've probably got 22 hours of training, maybe 25 at the most, and that's just on GIS, and then from there, I've run with it, which, if you had told me I'd be doing this, <laughs> I, would, I would have not believed you, but my dad was a program analyst, so I guess there's something behind here. Sure, <laughs> so yeah. carried over. Yep. <laughs> yeah, um, something to it. Well, yeah, so that's how how it happened. Yeah, that's you know it, it's obviously very interesting, and the and the technology continues to adapt and change in in front of us. And like I said, we we will we'll talk a little bit about more about that later. But for now, let's circle back because sure. let's cut right to the chase and talk about grouse report because it's been a heated and hotly debated topic throughout the summer months ever since drumming reports came out obviously we've talked about it a little bit here on the podcast i interviewed mark wateka of the wisconsin dnr a while back and chatted about it you know kind of throughout the summer 
Grouse populations are certainly in question in the upper Great Lakes states, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, for sure. Let's start with your eyes and boots on the ground. And I know you spend a lot of time out in the woods running dogs. What's What have you seen this summer? What comes to mind? What alarms you? What doesn't alarm you? Let's let's just hear your, your take on things right now. Well, I don't want to be negative. I do think it's going to have pockets. Do I think it's going to be one way all the way across the board? No. Yeah. Do I think you'll run into pockets that'll have some birds? Yes. And my gut feeling on this is, and I mentioned this before, you've got to look at the historical rainfalls. Um, that's important. And by looking at that, you need to look at the pattern from May, June, July, August in there. Just because, you know, foresters, like foresters, you may talk to foresters in the woods and stuff like that. Just because they're seeing birds in one area, I'm glad they are seeing birds. Don't get me wrong. But you bust that up, and then maybe they've seen some singles, but they don't know if they're seeing the same brood or just what. Yeah. Also, how long are they in one area? How long are they going to be um, in a particular area? Are they on light soil? Are they on heavy soil? Are they in hardwoods? I mean, I do know that there's certain times that you'll find these birds go up into edges of hardwoods. And, you know, because like our road going into camp goes up over 1,600 feet of elevation and drops back down into a pocket where we're back in there. And I typically would see, you know, birds in the summertime up there periodically. And August is sort of a quiet time a lot of times for these birds. It can t- typically gets hot um, and they settle in. But I've seen broods. I've not seen, at least where I am, the huge broods. And when I say huge, 8 to 12. Okay. I've seen broods all the way from 4. I've seen broods all the way from 8. Um, we all typically, I won't, I won't say an average or anything here, you know. It's just not going to be right to do that because you can't weigh one area for another. And I honestly think people need to think a little bit more about their soils this year because I think the places that fared better last year were probably lighter soiled areas than a heavy soil area. I tend to be, I live in a heavy soil area, which what that means is that it basically doesn't drain that quick. It pools and a light soil, you know, like sandy soil, it, you know, like in farming, those are the first places that will end up being showing for drought because the rain just goes, soaks right through, which means it doesn't pool as much in the woods there. Typically, it soaks it through until it becomes really saturated. And then you'll have, um, you'll have puddles and stuff that young chicks can drown in and so forth. But with not having all that, when you have an area that, that drains well, you also don't have standing water sitting around that can carry over for mosquitoes i do think you know i think when you put it all together do i think it's going to be a banner year no yeah i hope it's better than last year or i don't know what i don't know what to call it yeah because it's it's all over the board um and i honestly believe in one of the one of the statistics that's out there i talked to someone that another dnr person and she was quoting, there was this gal that does the historical weather surveys type thing. 
And up in our area here, over the course of the last six years, we've had 3,000-year floods. Yep. Well, go figure. What are you <laughs> going to do with all that rain? And, of course, you know, it doesn't. it's not like it's going to happen all in October. It always seems to happen at the worst time when you lose the first hatch and then you go and you have a second hatch. But there's all that rain. And, you know, I had to laugh. You know, inside I was laughing because I wasn't going to be rude to someone. But they're saying, well, they found West Nile up in some birds in Michigan. But they haven't found anything in Wisconsin. And I'm like, oh, brother. You know, it's not like mosquitoes know a boundary. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's here. It's, there's no doubt in my mind it's here because, you know, I had some robins up in my area that could not fly south in the wintertime. And, you know, I can remember four or five years ago, and I didn't give it much thought. It just, for some reason, it didn't hit me square in the face like it should have. I literally caught a grouse in December. I'm like, why are you by the road? I mean, and I'm thinking, okay. You know, someone must have taken a pop shot at you or something, and you, you're wounded, and he couldn't fly. Hmm. And I remember when I grabbed him, it was like grabbing a skeleton under the feathers. Wow. And I, I thought, I wrung his neck. So I thought, Christ, the worst thing with me is just to freeze to death out here. And I checked him for BBs, and there was no BBs. And, um, you know, more than likely... I don't know what he died of, but, you know, it sort of goes hand in hand with what we've all been thinking about, you know, but I can't prove it or anything. I used to turn birds in uh, before 2012 uh, when when they've, they've been doing, I can't remember how far back they've done the studies here in Wisconsin, but it's back before like 2009 and stuff like that, that they've been keeping data on West Nile virus. Primarily looking at the relationship of that to humans, to the equine, and of course to birds and, and some mosquito pools and stuff like that. Yeah. But but um, if you really look, things our our highs have not been as high as what they have been in the long past. And the second thing is our weather is changing. Yeah. And you can't you can't have the weather that we have and just expect these chicks to be great. And that they don't get hit by something else. I think, yes, last year was the perfect storm. You know, they got hammered by weather, plenty of mosquitoes. And it's when you see the broods and you knew the broods were in certain areas. And then you go back in September and you find them and there's, there's only half of them or less there. You know, you lose most of your chicks from what I understand. And young ones, you know, that are now going on to being adults typically in August, September, and into the first part of, you know, part of October. Yeah. Um, and that's why people will call me, and, uh, you know, yes, you're going to find birds, and I am finding wood, you know, I am finding woodcock. That's that's the nice thing. Yeah. And I am finding birds, but I'm not finding, at least in my area, these big, huge broods or anything, you know. And, like I said, it's always easy that you hear, this one thing where it's like, oh, man, I saw eight birds in that. And what sticks in that person's mind over and over again? It's not the other three or four ones that they saw, four to six, or four to five in the brood. It's always that upper number. It's no different than a hunting trip. You know, you think of all your hunts over the year. You don't remember all the ones that were lower in numbers. You always remember that, that those really sweet ones that were yes. birds you know, those numbers, those are the numbers you always remember. Yep. But 
when you average it all out, I think if you work hard, you'll get the birds that you want. I think you're going to have to shift, and I think you really, if you're not finding them on heavy soils, go find some light soils. Look for your lighter soils and shift around because they will drain. You got to think about that, you know. They definitely, I think drainage is going to be huge. It definitely played a factor last year. That is, that's a very interesting point, Dan. I, I probably will maybe have a follow-up question or two on that. You really, you touched on a lot of good themes and topics there. I, I do think that it is, it's always challenging to read between the lines, especially if, you know, we're excited. We want the reports. We want to talk to people. We want to hear what people are seeing, but you just can't vet every source and you can't, it's all, it's all apples and oranges. It's very hard to get a real apples and apples comparison by reading what one person's experience was out over the weekend. You know, maybe they walked one cover, didn't see any birds and they were, they had seen two birds there last year. And then there's nothing preventing that person from going out and saying, I went for a walk in the woods yesterday and didn't see anything, you know, and, and it's, it's hard to read between that stuff. But the thing is, I mean, I've always said this from guiding, and this is not meant to be arrogant. Please don't anyone take it this way. But you train your guide dogs to like almost an autopilot level. You do not want them to make mistakes because people are paying for that hunt. But what I go out and find, and what I'm trying to train these dogs to the level, and I believe in controlling the hunt. I mean, I'm probably too much of a control freak because I want no mistakes is that I cast out three dogs that are good enough to guide with, we're going to find birds. Yeah. And and that, but you take someone that comes up that's not able to put anywhere near the time into it, and it becomes a more difficult process because the dogs, they're not dealing with an easy bird that's just going to sit and hold still. Yep. They're dealing with a bird that's moving and leaves only a little bit of scent behind. And many people train their dogs to imprint that point on too much scent. And by doing that, how do you handle a running grouse? How do you handle a bird that is at the bottom of the food chain that is not going to wait up? And you get that you get that flash point that your young dog's going to do, and he's like, "Nope, not enough set for me to lock up. Let's go." And next thing you know, they're pushing because they're trying to get that much set. When you have a lot of birds, a young dog like that, it's easy to make dogs. But when you have birds that have are educated, that are acting like they have their PD, PhD in how to escape, <laughs> those types of people with those type of dogs, they're gonna they're gonna have trouble. And it boils down to reading your dog, controlling it on woe, and working through it. You know, it, it really, you can have a young dog, but you better watch the signals and control it, the momentum and the speed of the of the hunt in order to not accidentally bust that bird and to work at your dog to point really slow, reacquire, point really slow, reacquire, and stuff like that. Because the less birds you have... You know the old saying, safety in numbers? Well, when you don't have as many birds, and they're not a woodcock where they're going to just sit. They're going to like, oh, you're coming. I'm going. You know, and it's like, where's the tag holders? Where's the conifer? And, uh, you know, that's why woe is going to be huge for people that have young dogs that are not really exposed yet 
you know, to working the grouse. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're asking to, to work a really tough bird. Yep, absolutely. Okay, back to heavy and light soils. That's really interesting. Okay. It's it's something that I've actually paid attention to over the past few years because I my hunting used to be limited to an area that I would consider heavy soil. And over the past few years, I've started hunting some more areas that have lighter soil. So at first, I kind of had the feeling like, what the heck is all this sand? I don't know what I don't know what kind of aspen grows out of this sand, but it's not the same aspen that I'm used to walking in. But you're telling me that this year I might want to pay a little extra attention to that sandy aspen. Well, yeah, because just for drainage, I mean, um, drainage purposes, you're still going to need the stem density. Yep. You know, we still need the stem density, and the growth rate rate can be a little bit different on sand than it can be on heavier soils. Um, sure. Uh, you know, you have a drought on on sandy soil with aspen, and you're going to stunt it a little bit. And so you really got to look at your canopy, and one of the ways to judge the floor of the cut is that you're going to see, and you need to look this up for some of you, bunch berries and strawberry leaves. Those those plants won't grow when there's a bunch of when there's too much um, open, you know. They, they need a decent canopy, so you know you got to look at that. And you're you know basically if you if you're walking down excuse me down the trail, it's no big deal. But you need to get off the trail and you need to go in and cast in the cut and look at the quality of the cut, quality of the floor. You know, I'm always enthused. When I can go into a cut, and this is going to sound crazy, but if I find feathers, I'm always looking for feathers. I don't have to see droppings. I have to see feathers because feather means that someone's molting and getting their feathers and stuff. And if I find them on logs, I find them on stumps. I mean, I find them on a, a moss rock. I know there's birds in there. Yep. You know, and that. And, you know, you'll find the fluffy ones that, you know, were, were shed not that long ago because if you get a rain on it, it sort of mats it in. Yep. And, and then you're looking for, you know, areas with uh, nesting bowls, you know, like, you know, it's really not a nesting bowl, but it's a bowl they sit down in, you know, and they sort of, you know, that's that's the time when you walk by and you get about two feet down past this one area and pfft, right behind you, the bird goes up and it's like, where the heck was that? Well, that bird was just sitting yep. right over there. And then dusting sites. Um, so, you know, when you look at a cut, that sand... Is, could affect either too thin or too thick. And sand compacts actually easier than your regular soils. Um, I can remember we would subsoil um, the fields down in lower Michigan. We ran close to a 2,000-acre farm. And you'd get out there with the subsoil behind a big, big uh, eight-wheel tractor, um, and you'd just drop it in the ground just to break up that hard pan so things would grow better. And you'll see that a lot of the areas where if, you know, even on regular soil, if they compacted it, if you see that, you know, it's really weedy in a lot of it, there's a chance some of that got compacted, Um, you know, because then it stunts the growth of other trees. But what you're looking for is consistency in canopy uh, throughout the cut, and the sand will allow it to drain. Um, I'm not saying every area you have to be on sand. Right. But I've got, I got a feeling you're going to have to cast around. You know, this is going to be as much as you're going to try this cut and that cut and this cut. 
think about the quality of the cut, what the floor is like, and also think about um, what would happen in that cut if you got four to six inches of rain. How much water is going to pool in that, or does it just drain off? Yep. That's that's really important when you're, you know, especially in June. That is, I feel like that's that's like graduate level stuff, Ann. Yeah, I guess I don't think about it too much. You know, I just sort of run with it, but I'm glad you like it. <laughs> I think it's I think it's really it's very very interesting information for the dedicated, passionate grouse hunter, but also for somebody just starting out. I mean, that is that is invaluable information. And again, I think you summed it up well there to say that there are many many variables and so we're not out just looking for sand but it's like another tool to have in your pack where if you go out and you walk a heavy soil kind of clay soil forest area and you don't see any birds you know maybe you start thinking hmm oh you know what would what would happen if there was four to six inches of rain here and maybe maybe that sandy cut you know a few miles to the west maybe i should check that out it's another tool to have in the pack well, the other thing, too, is I was up in an area in Michigan uh, this past weekend, and they were getting quite a bit of rain again, and I was checking cuts out, and you could see where the weeds were, like, flattened, because all, you know, this is in the cut. They weren't really truly weeds, but, you know, little short tufts of grass, and it was like stepping from one one wet area to one area and the dogs you could hear them splashing and i'm like you know i think it was like the first week of june they got up in holton hancock they got like another thousand year flood up there did millions of dollars of damage and uh and i didn't see any signs that i would have liked to have seen but earlier in the summer i had been farther east because you get out of that clay soil that's on the western side and there's pockets of sand but i was well of course i was in some um, commercial forest land (laughs) (laughs) checking out stuff and when i i found my best signs that i've seen this year have been on lighter soil okay that's where i found the feathers that's where i found you know this and that that's where i you know, I found the contacts more, and, you know, I just, I found what I was looking for, and I'm not saying they aren't going to be on the other. Maybe I've just hit the wrong places. Right. But, but eh, go back to your historical rainfall and take a look at it, and, and look at the counties that were affected, and go back four or five years, and then start, I mean, if you've got to pl- print out every single june and every single may and every single july and do your percent of normal you need to do it you need to look at this stuff because you know you're you're doing a trip and you need to be able to shift and if you're saying i'm going to i'm going to stay at such and such a town and i'm just going to hunt within 40 to 50 miles of here that's fine and good but Think about, you've got to think about your your rains, your habitat amount, your soils. It's not like, you know, we weren't thinking about all of this as much 10 years ago. Yeah. You know, we were basically, where's the cut, where's the conifers, and how quick can I get there, and I don't want to get parked out. You know, <laughs> you know that's what we were thinking about, you know. Simple time. And, 
yeah, it was simple, and it was that, but now it's becoming a lot more, um, might as well be complicated, more in-depth. Sure. I mean, it's not that we're trying to overanalyze this, but you have to think. I mean, when, when it all boils down to it, what do the birds need? Yeah. If you don't know the bird and you don't understand that this bird needs specific habitat, this is part of the reason we cannot raise this bird and have you know, in captivity and have it flourish. It's not pheasants. It's specific habitat. They need specific habitat. They're at the bottom of the food chain. They do not have a lot of oil in their feathers. Very, very, their, their criteria is about as wide as a two-by-four, and it says, I don't want to deviate too much to the left or too much to the right. This is what I need, and this is what I have to have. Yep. And that, that is a gross. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yep. So. Okay, question. Where, yep. where is the best place? I'm, I'm, I may have asked you this before. I don't know if it was on the last podcast or not, but where is the best place to look at the historical rainfall data by, you know, geographic location? Would that be like NOAA? Yeah, it's the precipitation analysis. Okay, precipitation yep. analysis at uh, NOAA National Oceanic Atme- yeah. Atmospheric something or other. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> Precipitation analysis. Well, so you can look at right. you can look at areas, and you can look at rainfall over a timeline. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that that's you know that's part of the picture. Okay, you look at that. Then you need to know where your cuts are. Yes. And then you need to know where your older marginal cuts are in relationship to the cuts that are getting ready. And then the the other thing you need to know is is the, when birds, when you're on the low end of the cycle, which I figure we are, even though I think that we got held back some by weather and by a perfect storm last year, um, you need to realize when you have a lot of birds, they push out into marginal habitat. We don't have that case right now. These birds are going to be in the best of the best of the best. If, If not, you know, when you have a lot of birds, especially like male grouse, you know, let's start out with the first one. He's going to have the best that's there because he's the first one into this area. Then another one comes along and another one comes along. Another male comes along and says, well, Harry, I like your sight. You go, you go leave. I'll, I'll tell you. And he says, no, we'll find your own, Jim. You know, I don't <laughs> want him to do it. And then there's Joe over here saying, no, 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 I want it. And Harry stands his ground. And those two look at each other and they say, okay, you're on that side, I'm on this side. We each have our roughly, give or take, 8 to 10 or 11 acres, whatever, supports them year-round. Well, then the next group, and let's just say the habitat's fine, it's flourishing, it's got food, cover, everything they need all year-round. So then there's the next year, a couple more show up. Well, it was good for three, but now trying to fit four and five in there, it's sort of marginal. So those guys, you know, they're going to have it tough. So it's you need the very best now because when you don't have a lot of birds, if you don't have a lot of rabbits or snowshoes and that, the pressure is, you know, the, the snowshoes and the rabbits and the grouse are on the bottom of the food chain. Yes. And they have to have the very best. And we're not dealing in a lot of areas where you're going to hear 
five, six, seven drummers in an area. You're going to be two if you're good. If you have a good area, it would be three right now. It's not like when you're at the peak when you can walk in. There's one here, and there's one here, and there's one here. You know, the covers in their habitat is tight. And it's tight because they have to be able to escape quick. And the quality of habitat is going to be important. Food sources have to be close by because what if we're pressured? How are we going to escape? Everything is survivable. Now, it always is, but even I think it's heightened. Right. Because if you have a lot of birds, it's like geese. You know, you get a big flock, they're sort of a little more calm. But you only put five or ten geese in the field, everyone's on alert. Yep, that makes sense. Survival of the fittest, the tough times, that's what that's what weeds out the strong. Well, the only good news I have <laughs> I do believe in my area the weasel population is lower. No way. What makes you believe no that? Way. What was that? What makes you believe that? Well, they're actually not looking at George when he's getting the food ready in the tank room. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the wintertime, we'd have these little weasels that would come in the tank room because we, we basically were off grid, so we collect all our water and everything, and he's getting the food ready and uh, for the dogs, and, and they'd sit there and they'd look at him with their little beady red eyes, and then every once in a while, I'd have to get rid of a few because they would want to get in where my pigeons are, and uh, I'm not finding them as much, I mean... We had a weasel population explosion here for about three or four years, and it was driving me nuts because, I mean, you should not be seeing three weasels in two to three weeks running across the road. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. Most people see one, if they're lucky, a year. Yep, yep. And, uh, and uh, those little buggers were all over, but I'm not seeing them as much, so that's good. Well, there's a, there's a positive news. I like that, Ann. Well, they might only be in my neighborhood. I don't know. Maybe I scared them all off. <laughs> be on the lookout for weasels, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, okay, and I all right. Let's we talked a little bit about cuts there. Let's talk about aspen a little bit okay. and talk about it more. Let's add let's add some depth to it. Let's add a little bit of knowledge to it because so often, especially in the Midwest, we talk about Aspen and I think a lot of people could be, you know, myself included for a time. I'm, my eyes have been opened a little bit, but you get sort of this um, almost like tunnel vision on Aspen. Find the find the eight yeah. to 10 year old cut, get in there, everything will be right. Well, that's not necessarily the case. So talk a little bit about Aspen and about one cut and then how the habitat improves as you start to see those that diversity in age class where you have the different age cuts nearby and how that steps up you know each individual cover well it's the reason we talk about aspen is because it regenerates thick um, and it regenerates off of the root system primarily uh, on a uh, root system and it you know, it's like the roots are like the lifeline. Yes. Where you cut the tree and they're the lifeline for the next next series of uh, aspen that are going to come up. And that's why a lot of times you see two or three of these aspens in a row. And they're off of a main feeder. And you can tell which 
root systems has a better tap into nutrients and food source and moisture than other ones. And, you know, so they grow up thick. And I'm, I'm going to start from the beginning here for when you cut it and then they start to repopulate. And in the beginning, you've got this. But the reason why these grouse like it, they have to have the stem, stem density. They have to have the cover to live in uh, to be able to, one, raise a brood, which I believe is 44 acres is what Gordon Gillian, I believe, said that a hen needs to raise a brood. Okay. And then you've got the males that are typically not so much, you know, they're in sort of a mixed bag of habitat because their habitat has to support them year-round. You got to remember, you know, any male grouse that sets them up in the middle, middle of an aspen cut and all the leaves come down and there's no conifer, he won't be around. You know, it's just there's no protection. And the males need a mixed bag of habitat. The hens need certain specific habitat throughout the year. So you got your aspen as sort of what everyone thinks is the cornerstone. Um, in the beginning, you know, that hen, when she has her young, she's more closer to the older aspen, and she'll eat off of the flowering catkins in the spring and use that for nutrition. And then when she takes her, her chicks, majority of the time, the better place for her to take them to is a young aspen stand, has a good cover, a floor that's not full of weeds because these are not pheasant chicks. You know, they're little downy chicks that don't have really hardly any oil. Yep. And it's warmer in that aspen cut because it produces a thick canopy that holds the moisture in versus tag alder, which is even lower in elevation because you're getting closer to a water table and the canopy is uneven, which will allow cold to come in. So actually, Gordon Gillian talked about you know, the aspen cuts being actually a warmer place for raising chicks. Um, and, you know, they have the protection of the canopy. So you start out with there, and then eventually the aspen plays a role going into the fall. Uh, the first thing that the, the birds, we, many times we say, well, we're up in the trees. Well, the reason why is they're eating the leaves. Um, that's part of the nutrition and what they want to eat at that time. And they're learning to fly, and they're getting up in the trees, and they're eating, you know. I mean, it's not that they aren't eating other salads, but I don't know how many times the first well, first two weeks of the hunting season, I find them more coming out of a tree, you know, or they scare the heck out of you when they all of a sudden flush above you. <laughs> and, you know, you got a dog that's winding something on point, but it's sort of a weird point because, it's like, it's not coming to where it should be coming, the scent, you know, as long as the dog's got it drifting down. And, um, you know, so, you know, you've got that going on. Then the leaves come out, and then basically once the leaves shed, you know, the birds are still feeding on the salads. So your aspen still is still, you know, and the first ones to disperse, and I don't know if I'm covering everything that you want here, but the males are the first to disperse, and then the hens disperse next. And the males are sending up in amongst the other males, and that's why you hear the drumming in the fall, is because the males, the older males are saying, hey, you, you go find your own spot, get out of here. And the hens then go and regroup somewhere between, for our area here, for this far north, and it will change. Like, even in the UP, it happens almost a week earlier. But by the third week here, the hens are now situated in amongst the males. But the aspens, 
it's there, but it's not as important because they're not shifting anymore. But you still are going to have that. And what you're looking for then is for the aspen that has the hazel brush. Yep. The hazel brush forms like a secondary canopy form. Thick as heck, especially um, in Minnesota, you have a lot of it. Yes. And it's extremely thick. It's got the American and beaked hazel. It's got the catkins, and that's a really good food source. Plus, you know what? It's awesome protection. Very we much. We can't get in there. And they're hard to surround in there and hard to get out of there. Yeah, they are. And and then, of course, everything becomes one-stop shopping because they've got to be able – they could walk from where they were along the pines or the edges to the hazel and eat. And then they come back because after you've had so many frost, you lose the salad that these birds normally would be eating on. So you, it's, the aspen provides the stem density that you're looking for. The other thing, too, that's not talked about with aspen is you could take and you could cut a sugar maple stand and you could cut an aspen stand. And a lot of the floor of the sugar maple stand will not allow other vegetation to come up because the mat that forms in the sugar maple stand is extremely dense. So you don't get as many young plants that are succulent that these birds need in the part of their salad, okay? It's not that you aren't going to find them in the sugar maple or the hardwoods and things like that. There is a big difference between an aspen cut and when you do a clear cut in a hardwoods. Your vegetation growth on the floor are different between the two of them. Yeah. And your mat that is formed by the leaf litter is even different. I don't know if it's because the aspen leaves decompose more completely. I think they do. And then the small plants can keep coming year after year. Sure. But you go, you kick back. That's why woodcock love, you know, like a sapling cut is because it's like worm bedding underneath there yep. in the sugar maple stand. But I think, you know, it allows those birds to have protection in there. And that's why aspen is such a big big deal and if you were to look at the range of the rough grouse and the range of aspen they almost mirror each other you know you know it's really interesting yeah yeah very interesting and there there are a reason there is a reason that they are often talked about in the same breath and and that i think adds some great insight as to why to your point about Hazel brush. Uh, this is something that I talked to you about last year and I've been paying attention to it, but even more than hazel brush, that secondary layer, if you find a, a, a good looking aspen cut, I have found two of the best covers I think I've ever hunted. I've found in the last year, both of them had very nice prime eight to 10 year old aspen mm-hmm. and they both had a very thick secondary layer. One of them in Minnesota was hazel brush. Hazel brush that you could barely, I mean, you could, it was that classic right. stuff where if I fell over and put my arms out, I wouldn't move. You know, I would not fall. It was, it was that kind of thick of hazel brush. The other cover was in Wisconsin. It was a beautiful aspen cut and it is lined it's a it's a big aspen cut i think it's almost 100 acres and it's lined entirely with very very thick dogwood gray dogwood 
And another, that's another where it's, it comes up about halfway up the aspen stems and it adds that secondary layer where all the, I didn't find it until late October, all the aspen leaves were gone and it still had that really thick dogwood in there. And and we moved a bunch of birds really late into the year in there. It was, I mean, if you find a spot like that, definitely pay attention. Well, it's huge because that's an added protection and food source. I mean, the dogwood, you'll lose that. They lose that food comes, drops off really quick. All it takes is a couple of frosts and it's gone. Yeah. But, but it's it's that protection when they wander around. It's like you, okay, you take all those leaves off and you get down. If you have a secondary understory under this, it's just beautiful for yeah. these birds because while it protects them while they move around and they forage, but if they're you know that hazel brush and the catkins there are really going to help them going late into the season because they can feed effortlessly there, not waste a lot of energy, and then get back to the cover they need to be for protection. Yeah. Yep, definitely. No, good point. Well, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of chat about cover. There's no way we could there's no way we could cover it all, but I do want to talk about the newest, latest and greatest iteration of your scout and hunt platform, which is your digital online mobile mapping product why don't i just hand it over to you and and you give us a give us a rundown on what is now available to uh, grouse and woodcock hunters that that want to use this technology well the mobile has been a 10-year project for me um i envisioned this a long time ago but the platform wasn't there nor did I know how to even begin to design it. I know what I wanted to put in it, but I didn't know how to get it all to happen. So, you know, I guess you think about it this way, is that um, you needed a platform that could handle statewide data information. And, like, for instance, you know, Wisconsin here, where I live, or, and we, I've got this now for, I think I'm in 11 states, and there'll be 12 here pretty quick. Um, what I'm doing is, is that... You can put it on your cell phone, Android, or iOS. Um, you can put it on your tablet, Android, or iOS. Of course, it can't be five years old to ten years old, somewhere in there. Some of them at five might work, but it's not so much the memory, it's the processing, because you're utilizing a large data set, large files, and you can put it on a PC. And it allows you to look at all the habitat that's prime in a state. It's like a snapshot for the year. Here are your cuts that are 9 to 16. Here is your marginal habitat that is a little bit older that helps you determine where the shifts are going to be. Here's your public land. But then even on top of that, besides knowing the public land boundaries and knowing where the habitat is, you know, the prime habitat, you also will have the habitat that goes around, that surrounds that particular piece of habitat. Because the grouse world is not that big, but you need to know where that bird's going to ship, what cover they're going to seek to get away from pressure or to get out of the weather, and where they're going to ship from and where are they going to move. And And typically, they're never really too far off throughout the whole year from a really decent, you know, cut. It's, you know, and then it's, it's a, gives you a starting point. You know where to look. You're not driving up and down the road trying to figure where to go. It's like, okay, let's go put the boots on the ground. But here's a cut. We know where to go. And 
this is just this will save you time. You can see your GPS position in there. You can do waypoints. You can do tracks. Um, you can throw a base map in underneath it. You can cache it. Uh, it's pretty cutting edge. Yep, absolutely. I've had a chance to play around with it and and tinker with it a little bit, and it's it's again it's something that it's, I've been really interested in because I've been learning a lot about satellite imagery and, and doing the digital scouting over the past few years. And it's, it's really helped me a lot. And it's, it, it has 100% improved my scouting, even just looking at just going onto Google and looking at satellite imagery. I mean, that has improved my hunting, but this, this is something that I think one of the important things that you did mention there is we're now using, we can use the, the GPS capabilities of our phone to use this stuff in the field. So we're talking no cell service. It's a one-time download. Once you have all the cuts on your phone, you can take it anywhere, use your phone's GPS capabilities with no cellular service, and you have all the cut and habitat information right there with you in your, you know, whether you're looking at it in your truck or whether you stopped halfway through to, to this is something that I like to do. And I think you've talked about it. And, you know, I'll, I, I'm not afraid to stop in the middle of a hunt and say, Okay, cover looks like it's changing up ahead. Where where is this going to continue? Which direction should I should I continue mm-hmm. to to make this hunt longer, shorter, etc.? Right, right. And you can you know um, the offline part is huge because you you know a lot of people say, well, are you sure it's going to show me where I'm at? Well, you have a GPS in that phone. Now, I did have one guy that tried to put it on a flip phone, and that <laughs> just didn't <laughs> work. <laughs> And, that, and I helped him, you know, I told him what he needed to get. So he did get into a smartphone and then I helped him with it. But, uh, and then, you know, what's really comical is once, once they get going with it, the phone goes dead on my end. And I'm like, are you there? Yeah. <laughs> are you okay? Yeah. I said, did you find a bunch of cuts? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> all I they needed. I get these grunts almost, you know. <laughs> Yeah. And I just grinning from ear to ear because it's just, they go quiet because it's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that was there. And I've been hunting here 20 years, yep. you know. Yep. Um, but that's what it is. I mean, you can plan your hunt, you know, 20 hours away, take the same tool that you're using at home, use it in the field. I mean, you can uh, shift through the data. Uh, if you tap on a cut, a blue blue icon will appear that like a teardrop to you appear and it will show you your position there and on the bottom a bar will show up and then it'll show you how many layers are there and you can literally swipe through the layers and you get to this one oh i want more information and you literally pull up that window of information there's all the data on it and you say okay i guess i need to send this to my buddy where i'm at and you can take there's a coordinate right there you can push down on the coordinate it'll say value copy send it to your buddy and say come and find me, this is where I'm at. I mean, um, I tell a lot of people they're going to put it in Google Maps, so they, sh- they really should put it on a main road, <laughs> not on the two track, because Google doesn't do the two tracks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, it's it really, you know, like a lot of these, what's really, when you look at a lot of applications, you might have four to six layers. You know, if you're lucky, eight layers. Some of these layers are literally going over 30 on wow. some of the map. Yeah, it's incredible, and it tiles fast. You know, I, I've just been really, really pleased. They can cache up to 5 gigabyte of, uh, which is a lot, of uh, base map if you want it. Yep. Um, 
and uh, I'll be doing some more tutorials on it. You can create a waypoint. You can set your tracks. It'll help you in the woods a lot. I mean, you won't have to guess where to go. I mean, you just, man, there you are. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, I don't want a phone. Well, just turn it off so it doesn't ring and just look at the map when you need it. Yeah, yep. Or, you know, you can even, uh, you can go get a, Pick up an old, if you got, so a lot of people have an old cell phone lying around, you know, if you don't want to mess with, with the one that you have, just get one and wipe it out, clean up everything on it, download, only download what you need, just the map and, and, you know, you just need Wi-Fi for a, for an evening or whatever, download it and take that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not going to get much simpler other than someone taking you out and personally showing you. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's been 10 years in the making. This has been the vision I've had that I've wanted the maps offline. I've wanted statewide coverage, and I just wanted to make it easy so that you can analyze the area very quickly. Yeah, I, it gets me excited. I, I love it. You know, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a grouse hunting geek or something. I don't know. People want to call me that, but, uh, that's fine. Uh, I love it. And I think it's, I think it's going to help a lot of people. I really do. I really truly do think that this kind of technology will help people get over that learning curve. I mean, nothing again, I don't, you know, I hope we don't need to say this, but a lot of people like to pick and poke. I mean, nothing going to replace boots on the ground time in the woods. Nothing replaces that you have to do that. This is a supplemental tool. It's, it's additive and it can help you. I think that's, that's really all that needs to be said. Well, it helps you find where to start, you know. Yeah. And then you do your boots on the ground instead of trying to look and figure out where to start. Yep, and everybody's time is valuable, and we and we all know that. So, so any yep. the more value we can squeeze out of every minute we have in the woods, the better. That's that's yeah, what it's all about. We need thirty six hour days, not twenty. <laughs> yeah, we do. We need. Well, you know, I wish like what what month could we get rid of and just make October twice as long. <laughs> <laughs> you don't wish little you wish big <laughs> <laughs> yep that's the that's the northwoods grouse hunter in me i guess um okay and i we i want to mention this because i did jot it down and we are we're about ready to wrap up but people will be listening to this like i mentioned bearing down on grouse openers across the upper midwest so certainly you and i both wish everybody a happy and excellent hunting season. But one thing to be extra careful of always, 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 you mentioned it before we started recording in is heat, early season heat and dogs. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Cause you've got obviously a wealth of knowledge with sled dogs and you run a lot of dogs and it was something that you wanted to make sure people remember. Well, the biggest thing is, um, you know, you need to watch the heat, you know, different dogs do have different tolerances, but you put heat and humidity together, you you have to watch the amount of time that you're running that dog in that. And the sad part is, is that um, the dog doesn't always start staggering around. So many of us think that it's going to stagger around and they don't show these signs. I've run dogs for over 25 years, whether they were sled dogs or bird dogs. And what happens is when a dog overheats, the next time, you know, if it survives it and it gets through it and you get it cooled down, the next time it will overheat at a lower temperature. It's a, it's a, like a, uh, it's like a reset and it's a way the body protects itself so that it doesn't kill it the next time. So let's just say, like, I know of sled dogs that 
I saw people at the races that they couldn't run in 25 degree weather because they overheated them. Um, so same thing with a bird dog. All of a sudden, that dog can't tolerate 65 degree weather. It's going to overheat maybe between 58 and 60. But the other thing too is conditioning the dog, making sure the dog is in good condition, making sure that you know, it's not carrying a bunch of extra weight because the more weight and the more mass that dog has, the more it holds in the heat. Um, take some uh, rubbing alcohol with you, uh, which will help cool them down, that inner core. Make sure you've got your water with you. Uh, and, you know, there's no sense in bringing a dog in where it can barely walk and stumbles. You know, that's your hunting partner. You know, you need to really watch out because the problem is these dogs have so much heart. And they just want to go, go, go. And before you know it, all of a sudden you come up and the dog's on its side. You need to think about where, where you're hunting. And if you know it's going to be hot, where the water is. You know, how are you going to cool them off? Is there water where you're going to be at? Uh, one of the things you can do, be a dog that gets hot, dig down into the dirt, take some of the dirt, make a pack with it out of the water, and pack the inner core with mud, wet mud, wet, cool mud. Get it down to where it's cool. If you can't get the dog back, you know, to the truck or to whatever. But really watch the heat. It's uh, dogs don't do well uh, trying to hunt when they when they're really hot. So just you know, watch the heat there for the dogs. Yep, and just like you were talking about earlier, you know, people are out hunting these aspen cuts. They've still got a full canopy, and they're holding a lot of a lot of humidity yep. and a lot of moisture in. It's it's going to be yep. hot down where that dog is, even hotter than where your head is. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So I mean, you you got a buddy there. You put a lot of time into it. Um, but the older the dog is, you got a, it seems like a young dog and an old dog. You really have to watch. The young dogs don't have enough sense to cut back. The old dogs don't have the tolerance anymore, and they tend to get overweight. And people think I can get one more hunting season on it, one more, one more. But they don't put a lot of times the conditioning into that dog, where. You know, they're just going to, they're going to get tired quick. And when they get tired, they get hot, you know, and people tend to think, well, I used to get 45 minutes or 50 minutes or, you know, an hour and a half out of them. Sorry, the dog's 10 years old. And if you haven't conditioned it, you'd be lucky to get 30, but 35 minutes out of it. Yeah. So just take care of the dogs. Yep. Take care of the dogs. That's our, that's our public service announcement. Let's end on a, on a fun note and let's, Let's try to help people get maybe get their first grouse of the season. Let's say they're listening to this on the way up to bird camp. It's opening day tomorrow. What what last minute words of wisdom and advice? Where are you going to go? What are you going to look for tomorrow on opening day grouse hunting upper upper Midwest Great Lake states? Well, if it was me going out, I'd be looking for a good cut with good density. Look at your moisture. Think about how much dew do you have on your pant leg. Um, when your pant legs are totally soaked, those birds are typically still under the pines. You know, they haven't moved out very far because they don't have a lot of um, oil in their feathers. About the time your pant legs get halfway dry, those birds will move. Think about the, where's the sun going to hit first? What's going to dry off the dew first? Um, what's going to be, you know, it's, and then when it gets so dry, those birds have already fed and gone back in. So there is a sweet spot in there where. It's the moisture from the dew is gone. It's starting to dry out. There's a flurry of activity. 
you want to time it. If you're going to walk into an area, you need to know that you need to be there about the time you got half wet, you know, briar pants or whatever. They're half wet, they're half dry. That's where you want to be when you want to start your hunt. Not on the trail walking in. You need to be where you need to start it. Excellent, excellent advice. Let's hope somebody uses it and shoots a bird. (laughs) 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 Well, thank you so much, Ann. I I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. As always, we'll we'll have to make this an annual thing. I love it. I always learn something new. Now, for people, obviously, we can't cover it all, and, and you are a wealth of knowledge and information. If people have more questions for you, if they have questions about Northwind Maps, Scout and Hunt, all of that stuff, where is the best place to send them? You can send it to, you can go to our uh, Facebook page. You can message me on either Northwind Enterprises or on Scout and Hunt Facebook. And uh, you can go to www.scoutandhunt.com and you can go to the contact information there that you can still contact me off or give me a call, um, 715-264-2160. If I don't answer right away, I always try to get back to you as quick as I can. Excellent. And just to clarify, scout and hunt is scout, and then it's the letter N and hunt, right? It's not, you don't spell out the word and. It's an N. Okay. So scout, letter N, hunt.com. And I'll I'll put links to this in the show notes and make sure we make it easy for people. But you can always search. I always have good luck searching Northwind Enterprises on Google, too. That That usually gets me to the right spot. Yeah, you do Northwind, Grouse Habitat Maps, Scout and Hunt, Mobile Maps. Yep. You know, you'll get either one of them that way. Perfect. Well, thank, well, thank you, you very much, Anne. Again, as always, I really do appreciate it, and I know the listeners do too. I wish you the best in your hunting season this year. We will be in touch. Thank you so much. And thank you very much, Nick. I hope you have a great season. Thanks, Anne. We'll talk to you later. Yep. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You've been listening to the Project Upland podcast. We'd like to thank all of our partners on the podcast as they help bring you, the listener, each and every episode. Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Onyx Maps, and Gumleaf Boots. Please check out their websites, check out their operations, and support them as they continue to support the Project Upland podcast. Head over to projectupland.com for more great stuff, videos, articles, from Project Upland and Northwoods Collective. Check it out there at projectupland.com. Don't forget, you could be next week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway. All you've got to do is make a meaningful contribution to this show by doing any and or all of these things. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Hit that little subscribe button. Share the podcast post. And please reach out to us. Send us your feedback, your thoughts on the show, and your suggestions for future episodes. I'm an Upland hunter. I love to hear from other Upland hunters. Tell me your story. Reach out to me. Use the contact form at the Project Upland website or send me an email directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. That's it for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.